ever again. So sorry, guys. Well, I'm just going to say that I think that's the right color top for you. So anyway, all right. Well, I'm going to talk loud tonight um, because we don't have a microphone, but that's okay. The Lord knows, and the Lord is faithful and good to us, and I feel like he has something good for us here this evening. Um, as Amber said, I've been wrestling, wrestling with um, the book of Esther, not because there's not a lot in it, but because there's so much in it, and there is so much um, for us to know about how we got to this moment um, that Esther um, and Mordecai and King Xerxes and um, Haman are all um, actors in this. So um, as we begin, let me get my notes out and mention that. So am I allowed to put anything on this? Yeah, okay. Um, as we um, begin this new semester, it's the spring semester, by the way, in case you didn't notice by the weather. Um, hopefully the weather catches up with the title of the semester. But um, we are continuing on in this book, which everyone should have a book. If you're new and you haven't gotten your book yet, we have a book for you. Um, and it is, the theme is A Life of Influence. So during the fall, we went through the book of Ruth, and then now we will be in the book of Esther. And I wanna remind you, or if you're new, I wanna introduce this to you. Yes, that happened. Okay, so God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. This um, purpose statement, if you will, was not a statement that we put on the scripture and tried to make that true. It was a statement that came from looking at these two books and saying, what is the common thread here and what do we see? And so I think you will find as we go into Esther that this is as true as ever, that we will see that God is a purposeful author and our identity will be defined by him and we will have the opportunity and we will see people who have the opportunity for influence. And that was our graphic. So this phrase is fun for me, the Persian Empire in its rightful place in history. I loved that. When I read that in a commentary, I snatched that up and thought, that's exactly um, what I want to understand. So my story is that I went to college and I majored in history, which can be so boring and just filled with dates. But why I love history is because we get to find out why things happen why people make the decisions that they do. And that's the part of history that I love so much. And so that's the part of history that I was really looking at as we led into tonight. How, again, how did we get here? Um, and so what is the rightful place in history for the Persian Empire? Because when we open the book of Esther, we open up into a palace of opulence. There are gold couches, which I started thinking about this because in one of the commentaries I read, they said years, many years, hundreds of years later, other um, invaders came in and found these gold couches and these silver couches. Well, yeah, because how do you move the gold couch? That's hard. So 
total opulence. I mean, they talk about the marble and the, um, and the tapestry and all of that. And it made me, it actually sent me down a rabbit hole over the weekend of looking at, you all remember MTV Cribs? <laughs> I'm serious. And I'm happy to report Snoop Doggy Dog is doing good. <laughs> but some of you might not have watched MTV Cribs. You might have watched The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yeah. So I kind of, I bridged both of those. I saw some of both of those. Um, but that, that type of opulence that's in the palace is way beyond what we see. But we still celebrate it, right? So what is this Persian Empire that is filled with this type of wealth? So the Persian Empire um, was basically pulled together by Cyrus the Great. And he, that, the Persian Empire formed after the Babylonian Empire. So if you remember, I'm going to take us back a little bit to remember Daniel in the lion's den. He was in Babylon. He had been taken as part of the um, inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. And God, in his um, anger and in his being fed up with the Israelites, he judged them, and King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon invaded Jerusalem, like literally burnt the temple down. This was huge because the understanding that they had was that God dwelled in the temple and that that was how you worshiped God. And so that went away. Um, the, the city walls were destroyed, and 10,000 of the um, most healthy and vibrant young men, I don't, I, I don't even know if that's the right word for that, but the wise men, the craftsmen, the best, the cream of the crop were taken from there and they were taken into exile. And that is really the point where ancient Israel ceases to be. It, the glory days, um, the way that they experienced um, God's provision, a lot of that changed. They now were in exile in Babylon, and they would be in exile for 70 years. And King or, uh, Sir, or Cyrus, I got to get all my kings straight, Cyrus the Great was consolidating an empire, the Persian Empire, and he was doing that by conquering different nations and lands. And so he did that with um, Babylon. And, and that, what is said about him is, and his conquering, is it was almost like he let people free from the type of um, experience they were having in Babylon. It's not wasn't total freedom. But one thing he did do that was very providential, and it was no doubt inspired by God himself, is that he decreed that all of the Jews in exile in Persia could go back and rebuild the temple. And this was very significant. This was like, this was the top of mind issue for Jews in exile. So a group goes back, but not all of them go back. And so 50 years after they are allowed to return, we pop into Susa. And in uh, chapter 2, 
there's a, cu a curious statement that's made, there was a Jew in Susa. And that should make us say, why is there a Jew in Susa? Well, Mordecai and Esther, in the story, they are in exile, and they have not gone back. Um, the other thing, just to give you an idea of Persia and the opulence, as I talked about, it was so large, it was the largest empire that had ever been on Earth. Um, nearly 50% of the people on Earth lived within the empire. Um, and so when we think about, as we start unfolding the story of the annihilation, the decree that's, that's issued to annihilate the Jews within the Persian Empire, that effectively would have been the annihilation of every Jew on earth because the Jews were in exile within the, um, the Persian Empire. So let's talk about the author and the literary style of this book. So the author is unknown, not named. Um, the author is, um, is understood to have had inside knowledge of the palace. So perhaps they are somebody who had a similar position, although they were not a contemporary of the story. It's understood that it was uh, because of the events that are mentioned in the Book of Esther that the author lived a little bit later and wrote later. So it has been uh, determined that probably it was written somewhere between 200 to 400 BC. Um, the literary style. The literary style of this book is clearly a narrative, right? We're told a story and um, a narrative style is used to bring people into, bring the reader into what is happening. So that's um, a little bit about that. There is a particular, um, it, it is a comedy in the sense that it's not funny, but it is a comedy in the sense that it is U-shaped, right? We start up here with things going pretty well and we will descend into difficulties and the story will end back up. And so that's the shape of a comedy, if you will, traditionally. And um, in particular, it is, and I'm not gonna say this right, it's a peripety. Anybody know that word? Um, and it highlights the absurdity of the wickedness, ruthless Xerxes, prideful Haman, um, sudden, unexpected reversal of fortune. And we see a lot of that happen, right? We see people fall in and out of favor in this story. So let's talk, whoops, there we go. Let's talk about themes in this um, book. One of the primary themes is hiddenness. So Esther's name, um, Hadassah, is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. It means hidden. Esther hides that she is a Jew. Um, we see that um, as we get into the second chapter and we see that there's um, Mordecai overhears a plot that, that is heard, it's captured, 
but nothing is done with that. That is hidden for a time, and it will come out at the right time. We don't know the author of the book. That's hidden. And even more than that, God himself is not named in this book. We don't see any religious exercises of prayer. We don't see um, the reading of any type of scripture. It, but we do see fasting, and that has overtones of perhaps being religious. We believe that is. Um, but hiddenness is a common theme in this book. Favor. So again, people fall in and out of favor. When we start this book, we see that um, the second in charge, Haman is named second in charge in the whole empire. By the end of the book, Mordecai is second in charge. So that is you know, a reversal of fortune, if you will. Um, we see that Esther uh, has a lot of favor, right? It even says that uh, all around her, people looked on her with favor. Uh, we see that um, Queen Vashti, in the beginning, falls out of favor. So this theme of being in favor, being out of favor, um, is something that is throughout there and also hearkens to a bigger story of favor that God has toward the people. Identity. I mean, we go from Esther, not she's hiding that she is a Jew, to the place where she is admitting this to the king himself. So people living into their identity and understanding their identity is definitely a part of this book. So then, you know, because I was a history major back in the day, um, everything gets a category and you fit it under that. And I just didn't have a category for everything, so I made a category up, and that is take note. So I wanted to share just a couple things that just stood out in this book to me. Number one, there is a historic feud. So we talked about Mordecai is a Jew in Susa. Uh, Haman, or Haman, however you would like to say that, he, there's a little line that says he is an Agagite. That harkens back to a historic feud that we see in 1 Samuel. When King Saul um, was leading the people and they were stopped by the Amalekites of going through and they put, a, put up an obstruction, it angered God and he told Saul to wipe them all out, which he did not. He did not uh, wipe out King Agag, I think that's how you say it, Agag, all these kings. Um, and he was judged for that. But what God said is that the Amalekite people, the Agagites, would be judged for having done this to the Israelites. And then you see in Mordecai that it says that he is in the line of Kish. Kish is in the line of Saul. So this harkens all the way back to this historic feud. Um, lack of agency. So when we say that, it's about do you have control over the decisions of your life? Do you have the opportunity to say yes and no to things? And there is certainly a lack of agency in this book, right? Queen Vashti said no 
in our understanding, um, the best understanding that's out there, we don't know for sure, um, but she probably was asked to come to the king's court with a crown on her head, and that was it. And so was she done with being exploited? Is that her story? We're not sure. And that goes back to actually, and I meant to mention this in the literary style. This is written in a literary style that was common in Mesopotamia. And what they did was they would, they would write and tell you the events, and they would tell you what was said, but you would never know the intentions and the motives and the thoughts. We're very used to that. If you read our, our uh, fiction, you're gonna see in our literature that that type of thing is recorded. So what it does is it leaves the reader to think about that and make some assumptions. So um, we don't entirely know why Vashti did what she did, but we know also that for a young girl like Esther, who is in this beauty pageant that ends in the king's bed, how much choice did she have in this matter? How much were, were she and Mordecai compromised and enculturated? There's kind of questions about that. It seems like maybe there's some of that. Why did Mordecai encourage Esther to participate in this? You know, one author said, you know, this is where you want to have that Liam Neeson moment in Taken, where it's like, this ain't happening on my watch, but that is not what happened. Mordecai told her how to navigate that and to hide that she was a Jew and participate and do everything that the king's assistant told her to do. Why? We don't know. Um, but we do know that people did, were not able to fully um, be in charge of their lives, and certainly that was true for women in that society. And I think we do need to take care to not put our understanding and expectations of how we live today and our culture onto those times. So there's no mention of God. I said that before. There's hiddenness. This is important. Why is that? Why, why do we not see God mentioned at all? And what does this mean? Because we see God's hand. We see the providence of God. And then the timeline of events. I wanted to share this with you. Let me pull this out. You get this sense when you read the book of Esther that it's just happening so fast, right? It's like one thing after another happens and then um, Esther shows up and then, you know, but let me tell you what the timeline looked like. Xerxes became king in 486 BC. The next thing we're told, three years later, he holds um, a banquet with his war council. One year later is the final banquet with Vashti. Six years later, Esther is queen. Think about that. Did that, I mean, I feel like when I read that, I was really surprised because it feels like the book is just going very quickly. Um, four years later, Haman plots and sends an edict. And one year later, the Jews claim victory over their enemies. So this, this uh, timeline unfolds over, I think it's eight years. So keep that in mind as you read this. And as we think about people living into their identities, it wasn't like, well, Actually, maybe I will claim I'm a Jew. Like this was something that happened over time and as people became emboldened and able to do that. So 
I read this quote and I loved it so much because we go back to the story of the Persian Empire and the Jews um, in Susa. And there is a question that is out there for the Jews in this post-exile world. And the question is, basically, have we gone too far? The covenant that God made with us, have we just gone too far? Does he still love us? And does he intend to keep his covenant with us? Um, especially for those who were living outside of Jerusalem and trying to rebuild the temple. And so I thought this was such a beautiful thought when I read this the other night. The book of Esther shows us once again that God will protect his covenant people. He will do it through other people. I think we should take note of that. This time he did it through the courage of other Jews in exile. So what a beautiful um, affirmation for people who are living in exile, who are wondering and like they haven't gone back, they're not rebuilding the temple. This is a resounding yes. God will continue his covenant with his people. He promised it, he continues it, and this is important because that leads us back to the greater redemptive story. Out of these people will come the Messiah. And if they were to be annihilated in the kingdom of Persia during this time, that would not have happened. So God is at work around us always, and often he uses people who are willing, and sometimes he just allows people to participate who have no idea or are, are unwilling. So this, I think, is just the bottom line statement. If you, we just want to sum it up, God fulfills his covenant promise through his providence. So while his name is not shown, is not, we don't read his name, his providence is shown all throughout this story. Do you think it's an accident that King Xerxes wakes up in the middle of the night and asks that the story be read about how Mordecai uh, reported the plot against him? Not likely. So I'm going to wrap up on the whole book on that. And I want to talk about just three things out of Esther 1 and 2 that we're going to uh, look at tonight together. First of all, um, the thing to know about this is there are three things that occur in Esther 1 and 2 that set the stage for the rest of the book, right? Um, if these things did not happen, we would not see the next uh, the next things unfold in the book. And so a friend of mine that I was sharing this with, I was like, it's like, this is the intro. And she said, this is like the movie. They start with the film clip and then they run the credits and then they show the rest of it, right? So here's what happens before the credits. Number one, Vashti is banished. It, if she had not been banished from the court, there would have been no contest for a new queen. Number two, Esther becomes queen. So Vashti is banished. The providential hand of God, Esther becomes queen. She has favor. And then Mordecai overhears a plot to harm the king and is able to report that back. And that's where it ends. And typically what would happen, the custom would be that Mordecai would be recognized right away. And in some way, the king would have shown his um, gratitude and thankfulness to Mordecai. That does not happen because it is setting the stage for what is to come. 
So I just wanted to share that with you as we go into our groups tonight. And um, if you want to listen to the recordings, if you're not going to be here, I just wanted to share that. And with that, I am going to pray for us, and we will go to our classes. Okay. Father, we're, uh, we're in awe of you and um, your very evident hand, even when we don't see your name. Lord, we see you in our lives, and we see you in the lives here. And God, we thank you that you had a larger redemptive plan from the beginning. Nothing thwarts you, and nothing uh, keeps you from your covenantal love with your people. Um, God, we love you. We're thankful, and we pray for our groups this evening. Amen. <laughs>